Welcome to the Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and to continue with the theme of Victorian true crime first in celebration of the new year, tonight's story covers something that nowadays we just consider to be fact. But in the Victorian era, it was all brand new. And that something is fingerprinting. Tonight's story is the first murder case solved by the use of fingerprint evidence. This is the story of the Stratton brothers. But first, a Victorian society tip. Earlier this month, we talked about Dr. Crippen, who was the first murderer caught through the aid of wireless telegraphy. Tonight, we're going to talk about the first murder solved with fingerprint evidence. The Victorian era paved the way for all sorts of innovations in transportation, communication, and medicine alike. It saw the first use of electric lighting, the telephone, underground railway systems, the x-ray, the bicycle, anesthesia. But there were some inventions that were used for the first and last time during the Victorian era, such as the fence cycle, which looked sort of like a bicycle, except the wheels were up by the handlebars and seat, which allowed you to essentially ride along fence railings. They also invented the Niagara wave and rocking bath, which promoted the idea that bathing and moving water, such as oceans and rivers, was good for circulations and arthritis and digestion. It was kind of like a giant bathtub-sized rocking chair that was meant to be filled with water and used indoors. Another invention was the gentleman's multi-purpose cane, which was a walking cane that could be converted to a butterfly catching net, an umbrella, a flute, an opium pipe, a horse measurer, and probably more. They also got really into electromagnetism, particularly what they called animal magnetism, which was the idea that all living things' bodies contained a magnetic fluid that could be used to influence health. It's from this concept that inventors came up with things like the electric hairbrush or the electric corset. Now, when I read about these, I thought these were somehow literally using electricity to deliver like tiny electrical shocks or something, but no, that's not what this is. When Victorians referred to the electric hairbrush or electric corset, they just meant it was made with really strong magnets embedded in it, which they thought was controlling this magnetic fluid to flow more correctly throughout your body. They made the claims that such products could help with constipation, malarial, lameness, rheumatism, blood diseases, and even paralysis. One ad for an electric corset read that they were, quote, The very thing for ladies young or old, especially those who suffer from weak back, chills, rheumatism, hysteria, internal complaints, loss of appetite, nervous dyspepsia, kidney disorders, rheumatic and organic affections, ladies' ailments, biliousness, etc. Wow, all that, so easy to cure. But wait, there's more. By wearing this perfectly designed corset, the most awkward figure becomes graceful and elegant, the internal organs are speedily strengthened, and the chest is aided in healthy development. Quickly before we get into the story, I have a new Patreon to welcome. Welcome to Sierra. I am so glad you're here. Sierra joined at the Housekeeper and Butler tier, which includes access to the bonus content I release with each episode. I always share what the bonus content is at the end of each episode, so just a reminder, you can find all of that on Patreon. If you want to learn more, you can go to my website at agoodnightforamurder.com, where you'll find everything you need there. Also, earlier this month, I was honored to be a guest on the podcast True Crime Binge with Bob Ruff. Just search for True Crime Binge wherever you listen to podcasts. I was featured on their very first episode of the new year, and I am so grateful. 
Thanks for listening through the announcements, everyone. Now let's get on with the story. Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. This story begins early in the morning on March 27, 1905 in the Deptford area of London. It is about 8.30 in the morning and 16-year-old William Jones is on his way to work. He works as an assistant at Chapman's Oil and Color Shop. So far as I can tell, an oil and color shop is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It sells paints and polishes and solvents and the like. And it's not uncommon for the shop to open very early in the morning so tradespeople can pick up supplies on their way to work. So by the time William arrives, the shop is usually already open for business. But this morning, he finds the windows still shuttered and the door locked. Now this is highly unusual. The shopkeeper and William's boss, Thomas Farrow, and Thomas's wife, Anna, aged 71 and 65, respectively, live in an apartment on the second floor of the shop. So William starts knocking and hollering up at the windows. But nothing happens. There's no answer. So he peeks through a window, and inside he can see chairs turned over, and he realizes there could be a problem here. He runs and brings back a man named Lewis Kidman, who manages a shop nearby and also lives in the area, and together they force their way in through the back door. Inside, they discover the body of Mr. Farrow in a pool of blood, and upstairs they find Mrs. Farrow unconscious but still alive. They immediately rush out to find police and a doctor. The police arrive first and notice that the shop is kind of trashed and the empty cash box is laying on the floor. To make a path for the doctor to get through to Mrs. Farrow upstairs, one of the sergeants, Sergeant Albert Atkinson, reaches down and shoves the cash box out of the way. The doctor arrives and Mrs. Farrow is taken to the hospital. The police begin the investigation and determine that there was no forced entry into the shop, other than that of Assistant William and the neighbor shopkeeper, obviously. And they also note that Mr. and Mrs. Farrow were found still in their nightclothes, meaning that Mr. Farrow had been awakened and willingly opened the door for his assailant. From the trail of blood at the scene, they could tell he was immediately attacked at the door, then tried to go after his assailant after they gained entry when he was attacked again. After that, he stayed down where he unfortunately perished. Mrs. Farrow was attacked upstairs, likely hearing the commotion and trying to make her way to her husband, when one of the assailants ran up and attacked her. There was a bloody basin of water downstairs where the assailants had tried to clean up, but based on the scene, whoever did this certainly left the shop covered in blood. Two masks made out of women's stockings were also found discarded at the scene, and there was 13 pounds, equivalent to about 1,800 U.S. dollars, missing from the cash box. It was noted that on the bottom of the inner drawer of the cash box, there was a greasy smudge that appeared to be a single fingerprint. Now, seeing as we have a double homicide in our hands, Assistant Commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police and Head of the Criminal Investigation Department, Melville McNaughton, immediately took control of the case. McNaughton was a member of what was called the Belper Committee. The committee had formed five years earlier to examine the merit of anthropometry and fingerprinting as a means of identifying suspects and solving crimes. Now, I think pretty much everyone will have a familiarity with fingerprinting. Our fingers and palms of our hands all have a unique set of ridges on them. No two people have prints that are exactly alike, and prints will pretty much stay the same our entire lives. This is common knowledge now, but back in the early 1900s, we were just starting to figure it out. Before fingerprinting, police use a system of anthropometry. 
Anthropometry was a system that would assign a grouping of distinct measurements to each person, which included height, bust, stretch, head length, left foot, right ear, cheek width, middle finger, and the cubit, which was the length from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. So the idea was that no one else would have your exact same measurement markers that could be used to uniquely identify suspects. By 1905, most experts had started to come around to fingerprinting being the more reliable sorts of uniquely identifying individuals. In fact, in 1902, fingerprint evidence was admitted as evidence for the first time in the case of Harry Jackson. In June of 1902, Harry Jackson broke into a home with the intention of robbing it. Police found some fingerprints and some not quite yet dry paint on a windowsill through which they suspected the thief entered the home. They compared the prints to the family and staff in the home and finding no match, they started to compare them to their still small database of prints from convicted criminals. And they found a match, Harry Jackson, who had previously served time for a burglary. Now, they wanted to bring in the fingerprint evidence, but it had never been done before. So they brought in Richard Muir, who was kind of like the hotshot prosecutor for the British Crown at the time, and he helped the jury really understand the reliability of this new science of fingerprinting. And they got the conviction. Harry Jackson was found guilty and sentenced to seven years in prison for burglary. But in this case, the case of Thomas and Anna Farrow, it was a murder case, so the stakes were a lot higher. Either way, Detective McNaughton was a strong supporter in the validity of fingerprinting, and he thought if he could find a match to the print on the cash box, they'd find their killer. So he carefully collected the cash box and sent it to Scotland Yard's Fingerprint Bureau, which was only established four short years prior. The Fingerprinting Bureau compares the print on the box to the pharaohs and the sergeant who moved the box when the doctor came through, but found no match. So they start searching their fingerprint database of 85,000 prints of convicted criminals. By today's standards, that's a very small pool of prints to pull from, but considering they were manually going through each set of prints by hand and comparing them with nothing but their eyeballs, that is no small undertaking. Now, even if they do manage to find a match, investigators know they'll need more than this newfangled fingerprinting science to convince a jury. So all the while, they continue to question witnesses. And fortunately, turns out there was a lot of them. Many witnesses saw two men leaving the shop around 7.30 in the morning one in a dark brown suit and cap, and the other in a dark blue suit and bowler hat. Two separate witnesses identified the man in the brown suit as Alfred Stratton, and the description they provide of the second man matches his brother, Albert Stratton. The brothers are about 20 and 22 years old, and neither have a criminal record, but they're known to police for being mixed up with certain criminal gangs in the neighborhood. Investigators go to question Alfred's girlfriend, Annie, and she says the night before the murder, Alfred was not with her, but he was there when she woke up and he was already fully dressed. This was unusual as he normally just slept at the house with her. That day, he also got rid of his brown coat and shoes. She was also able to provide police with a tip of where Alfred had buried a small sum of money nearby recently for safekeeping. Plus, she said that he had asked her for a pair of stockings the day before. I'm sure he had some explanation, though I couldn't find it in any source materials. But the point being, all this looks pretty suspect. Albert's girlfriend, whose name is Kate, said Albert didn't stay with her that night of the murder either. He turned up again the next day with an unexplained amount of money. Now, this is pretty good stuff so far as a police investigation is concerned, even without the fingerprint evidence. But what they were really counting on was that Mrs. Farrow would regain consciousness and be able to provide a description of her attackers. Unfortunately, though, that never happens, and she dies four days after the attack on March 31st. 
Since they're not going to get their firsthand description now, the police decide they'll have to bring in the brothers on the witness testimonies alone, and they are granted warrants for their arrest. Both brothers are arrested on April 2nd and are fingerprinted. Their explanation for where they were that night is that around 2.30 in the morning, Alfred was awakened by his brother Albert, who was tapping on the window. Albert wanted to know if Alfred could lend him money for a night's lodging, but after Alfred went to go look for the money, he came back and found Albert gone. So he went out into the night to look for him. He caught up with him in the area of Regent Street, where he told Albert he didn't have the money to loan him, but he could come back to the house and sleep on the floor there, which a number of witnesses did see them on Regent Street that night. As for the money, they say they won that betting on a boxing match a week before. When the prints came back, though, they find the print on the cash box is an exact match to Alfred's right thumb. Both brothers are arrested, and their court date is set for May 5th, 1905. The prosecution brings in Richard Muir, the same prosecutor who won the case against Harry Jackson three years prior that we talked about. The trial begins, and the prosecution called over 40 witnesses, most of which, but not all, were able to positively identify Albert and Alfred as the men they saw in the area of Mr. Farrow's shop that morning. One of their witnesses was William Giddings, who was one of the jailers at the prison where the brothers were being held. He testified that Albert had called him over and asked if Alfred, who was being held in the next cell, was listening. And then he said to the jailer, I reckon he, meaning Alfred, will get strung up and I shall get about 10 years. He has led me into this. The prosecution hoped that the jury would take this as a confession of sorts. Now, when it came to the fingerprint evidence, the prosecution called Detective Inspector Charles Stockley Collins. Collins was the head of Scotland Yard's Fingerprint Bureau and was considered the foremost expert in the field for the UK at the time. Prosecutor Muir walked Collins through explaining to the jury, in layman's terms, how fingerprints worked, what fingerprints are, how everyone's unique, and how they can find fingerprints left at the scene of a crime to compare to the prints of suspects. He showed the jury the cash box with the prints, then enlargements of the prints side by side with prints taken in ink from Alfred Stratton pointing out markers used to distinguish a print as unique and confirm the match. After that, the defense called Dr. John Garson to the stand. Garson did not believe in the validity of fingerprinting, specifically that a single print was enough to indefinitely confirm a suspect. The fact that Garson had also advised the Belper Committee at one time lent credence to his opinion. Further, Collins for the prosecution had mentored under Garson, and the defense hoped this would elevate Garson's testimony in their minds. Upon cross-examination, though, the prosecution effectively proved that Garson was not an expert in fingerprinting at all. His specialty was in fingerprinting's rival science, anthropometry, which had steadily begun to be disproven as a reliable method for suspect identification. Then, Muir presented to the court two letters, both from Dr. Garson, written on the same day. One was to the director of public prosecutions, and one was to the solicitor for the defense. Both letters stated that he was willing to offer his services to whichever side would pay him more. With that, the judge instructed the jury that Garson was an absolute untrustworthy witness. The jury deliberated for a little over two hours before returning a verdict of guilty for both brothers. And they were both sentenced to hang. The sentence was carried out on May 23rd, 1905. I could only find a burial record for Alfred Stratton, which is at the Wandsworth Prison Cemetery and Crematorium in London. I'm assuming Brother Albert is buried there as well. So there you have it, the first case to use fingerprints as evidence to convict a murderer. Two of them, actually. 
If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a good night for a murder, you can see some photos of the Stratton brothers, the prints, other evidence used in the case, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a good night for a murder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier Patreons for this episode are two more stories that took place even before the Stratton Brothers case, where fingerprints contributed to solving a case. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.